please remain standing with me and turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Jude. Um, if you have trouble finding it, it's a little bitty book. You go to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and flip backwards one book until you find the book of Jude. Just one chapter, 25 verses long. If you're new to Christianity, aren't familiar with the Bible, we're glad to have you here. We've printed that text for you in your worship guide on page 8 so you can have it in front of you. Jude chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for God to bless his word preached. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, um, we come to your word with a lot of stuff in our hearts. We need you to cleanse us, purify us, convict us, and comfort us. And so we pray that by your word that caused the world to spring up out of nothing, but by your word that produces a harvest 30-fold, 60-fold, or even 100-fold that which is sown, that you would produce good fruit in us. May the best of that fruit be a growing faith in Jesus Christ, a vibrant love for you. Awaken us, encourage us. Oh, we pray, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, do these things through your word. Amen. Well, when you, uh, when you trust in something that just is a little off, it can have really big consequences. So you've got to be careful what you trust in and also where it's leading you. I remember it was the late 90s and online directions had just become a thing We were living in Orlando and had been asked to participate in a wedding on the west coast of Florida. And you know me, I'm a little tech forward, so I hop online and get the directions and print them out. And we get in the car and hit the road with confidence because we had following the next new thing. It was going to lead us in the right direction. About an hour into the trip, we carefully following the step-by-step directions when we realized that we were heading to the east coast of Florida. It was a subtle mistake. It just had told us to turn the wrong way on a toll road. And almost an hour into it, we realized that we had taken just a subtle misdirection. Thankfully, we turned around, we were late to the wedding, arrived just in time for me to open the door and walk down the aisle and do my part. A couple got married, things were fine. But what appears to be helpful when you trust it, if it's not all in right, with just a subtle change, can lead you 
astray and can have catastrophic consequences. That is why Jude is writing this little letter. False teachers had infiltrated the church. In verse 12, he calls them hidden reefs. They were dangers that weren't overtly obvious, just lurking right below the surface that you can't see, but their teaching had the potential to shipwreck the faith of the entire church. This is the purpose that Jude is writing. So before we spend the next four weeks in the book of Jude, I want to give us a basic sketch, uh, firstly, about um, of, of, of uh, the book of Jude. You know, Jude, is, we're going to do here in the next few minutes, we're going to follow the 300 foot, you know, if you put in directions in Google Maps, the first thing they do is give you an overview. That's what we're going to do. This is the route we're, that Jude is taking. Or maybe if you're old enough, you remember uh, the AAA triptychs. And that was the first page before you flipped to the other ones was the overview map. This is where Jude is going. And one of the first questions that we always need to ask when we're reading a letter in the Bible, and that's what this is, a, a letter written to a church, right? These are occasional letters, so that means they're written by a particular person for a particular occasion. And, and so to read them rightly, to understand what Jude is saying, you need to understand the occasion. If you want to read the Bible well, you always have to ask a couple of good questions, like who wrote this and why. A lot of times what happens in bad interpretation of the Bible, the kind of subtle change that can lead us astray and have, have con- terrible consequences is that that we don't ask this first question. What, what was the original hearers and hearing? Why was this book written? Who wrote this and why? And, and so the author, we're told in verse 1, is, is Jude, a servant, or better translated, slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And so who is Jude? Jude, or really in the original language, Judas. Um, Jude is sort of short for Judas, can be interchange, used interchangeably, and there's many Judas, Judes or Judases in the scriptures. It's a common name. But he gives us a follow-up as to who this was. Jude, the brother of James. Well, the only James that is well-known enough in the Bible to be mentioned um, is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James and was also presided over the Jerusalem council, which means that Jude was also the half-brother of Jesus. Half-brother because Jesus was conceived by God, the Holy Spirit, in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And so Jude also comes from the womb of Mary, but through the fathering of Joseph. And so that means that Jude, uh, Jesus' little brother in the flesh... He grew up with Jesus. He shared a bedroom with Jesus. And you have children who, you know, regret the fact that you had to share, you have to share a room. You don't get your own room. Well, well, here's Jesus. He had to share his room too. Jude sat at the dinner table with Jesus. He, he with Jesus, apprenticed under Joseph and learned the family trade. He played in the yard with Jesus. He 
knew him well. That's who we're hearing from. And so the other question that we need to understand, you know, to get a kind of a big picture and, under, and keep ourselves tethered in our interpretation is, is what's going on here? How is the book of Jude structured? Where is Jude going in this? And students, it's, it's always good to do this when you read a new book is to look at the table of contents. Where, where is the author going to go? You know, get that, that map so you can get a sense of his argument. Jude's only 25 verses long, it's short, it's concise, one chapter. But because of that, it's often neglected in the church. And I've been asking around, you know, how many of you have heard sermons preached on the book of Jude? And I'm sure there's an exception or two in the room, but mostly the answer I'm getting is none. And the reason is that um, there's two reasons. One, it's so short, which is one of the reasons we've picked it, because we only have four weeks before we hit our Advent series, and so it fit in well. But the other reason is that it's often neglected is that it's hard. It's a hard book. Jude has some very hard things to say to the church that he's writing to. It's not your typical you know, encouraging thing. In fact, that was the letter Jude says, I wanted to write to you an encouraging letter, but I found there's a problem and I have to address it. And and he just packs so much into these 25 verses. I've I've thought it's like this rich piece of chocolate cake. You can't take in all at once. You've just got to take a bite. It's so rich. You've got to take a bite and sort of savor in it and let the richness sink in. And and so Jude is one of those letters that you really have to slow down in. Now, if I can switch the metaphor, the way he structured the book is like a, a bad Oreo, right? And a good Oreo, the middle stuff's the best stuff. But like this is like an Oreo with hard, bitter medicine in between. Right, so verses 1 through 4, our introduction section here, Jude says some really encouraging things to them, reminds them of some really encouraging things about who they are in Christ and, and what they've received from them. And then in verses 24 and 25, he sandwiches the other ends with some really encouraging things for them to hear. But in between, he's got some really hard warnings for us that's going to be really difficult for us to receive. Now, the structure I want to remind you is the way God speaks to us frequently. He couches hard things with reminders of his grace and mercy. And that's important for two reasons. One, God says hard things to us, bitter things oftentimes that are difficult to receive. And he's going to warn them, for instance, of the harshness and reality of God's judgment and the danger of falling away from Jesus. But before he does that and after he does that, he reminds them of who they are in Christ. He reminds them the, the, with the remainder of God's great ability to keep them all the way to the end. This is the way God speaks. He always speaks... Not just words of encouragement, but words of confrontation. And not just words of confrontation, but couched with grace. Parents, you remember this structure. It's a good way to learn how to confront and warn your children. Let me remind you of my love for you. Now let me warn you of the dangers that you're facing if you keep going down this route. 
And then let me remind you of my commitment to you. I won't give up on you. I'll keep you as your parent. I will love you all the way to the end. It's a both and, but they're both not only a both and, but that structure is so important to remember. Not only in our speaking to our children, but remembering on how our Father speaks to us. And so that's the big picture. Now let's turn our attention to verses 1 and 2 and, and see who Jude is writing to. Because his address at the end of verse 1 to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ is a great definition of what a Christian actually is. First, notice how deeply Trinitarian this is. This is our salvation, all three Members of the Trinity are involved. Notice how God-centered it is. It's all of grace. The, The Christian is someone who has been called by God, who is beloved by God the Father and kept by the Holy Spirit for Jesus Christ. It's all of God's grace. A Christian isn't someone who first does things for God. A Christian is someone who has had God, by his grace, do something for us. Jude grew up with Jesus. He went to bed with him, had to share a room, saw him perform miracles. And yet John tells us in John chapter 7 that even Jesus' brothers, including Jude, didn't believe in him, saw him performing his miracles. Can you imagine? I often think how insufferable it must have been to grow up with a, a brother who was perfect. Like, he always did everything. Like, you can never say, well, he did. Like, well, I mean, you don't get that out with Jesus. He knew he was perfect, saw him love his parents, saw him turn water into wine, saw him raise the dead, and yet didn't believe in him. He knew, he knew there was a time when he went from a hardened, unbelieving rebel to one who was trusting in Jesus because God had done a work in his heart and called him to himself. Called him out of darkness into light. Called us out of unbelief. And in that process, God heals the ears of our hearts and gives us the ability to believe. And then God puts his love on us and keeps us all the way to the end. Jude knew Like, I know what unbelief can do to me. And if the Spirit doesn't keep me for Christ Jesus, I will be lost. This is who you are, called by God, loved by the Father, kept for Christ Jesus. It's a pattern. It echoes Romans chapter 8. Those who the Father predestined, He also called And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he's also glorified. Salvation is one long strand of God's grace. He starts the relationship. It is always a relationship of love for his children. And because of that, by his spirit, he keeps us all the way to the end. So at the end of the day, we are presented to Christ Jesus when he 
returns and we say with triumphant voice, God has done this. But that's not all a Christian is. Look at how Jude introduces himself in verse 1 and how he refers to himself at the end of verse 4. Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus, servants to tame of a word. The Greek is doulos. It's actually a slave, the lowest rung on the slave-servant ladder. It's not a servant, a slave. And then he refers in verse 4 to Jesus as our only master. That's slave language and Lord. This, too, is a fundamental identity marker for those who belong to Jesus Christ. I am beloved by God and a slave. Jesus is my master, and all that I am belongs to him. All my money, all my affections, and in this context, all that I believe. Jesus gets say over what I believe. Lifeway. And Ligonier Ministries recently released a survey, the results of a survey that they've entitled Study of the State of Theology in America. One of their findings was that 60% of professing Christians agreed with this statement. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not objective truth. If you are called by God the Father, beloved by the Father, kept for Jesus Christ, Jesus is your master, you are your, his slave, he gets to dictate what you believe. It never starts, this, these words, I believe, should, at, so, you know, like, at the most fundamental level, I believe should be, I believe because Jesus says, and if he says something I don't like, I believe it. I'm, I'm his slave. He's my master and he loves me. Even if it's unpopular, even if it invites critique, even if it's not popular in our culture, even if we mocked for it, the master gets to dictate what we believe. It must be conformed to his word. Which is our segue into the threat that this little church is facing And Jude is addressing because false teachers had crept into the church and they were subtly perverting the gospel. False teachers are always, in every age, a great threat to the church. And to be honest with you, it's not something in America that we like to talk about. The church's greatest threat has always been from the inside, not from the outside. The Bible spends so much more time warning us about the danger of bad doctrine inside of the church, of false teachers inside of the church, than it warns us about the bad outside of the church. Paul, in Acts chapter 20, gets the elders together from the church of Ephesus, all of the elders from the church of Ephesus, and he's instructing them. And and this is one of his warnings. I know that after my departure, this is the way he speaks to false teachers, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples away after them. 
And notice here in Jude that the false teachers have crept in. Right? They're not always obvious because Satan masquerades as an angel of light. They'll use our own words. They look like the real thing. They'll, they'll take our language and just subtly twist the meaning of those words so that they end up meaning something completely different. And so Jude is telling them who are slaves of Jesus, beloved by God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ. He is telling them in verse 3 to contend for the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. Contend means fight for, hold this precious ground like a man whose house has been broken into by robbers and will fight, will contend for his household to keep safe what is precious to him until those who have snuck in to destroy run off and flee. There is an important, healthy, essential debate for theology, good doctrine within the church. For, in fact, Paul tells Timothy the word for sound doctrine that you'll read in his letters to Timothy. That word sound is healthy. Because healthy doctrine leads to healthy people. We see this at the end of verse 4. That they who pervert, they twist the grace of God. And what ends up happening is they uh, leads into sensuality and deny only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Good theology. We've got to fight for this. Right? It said sometimes doctrine divides. And so let's avoid it because doctrine divides. It's right. It does. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Like the walls of your house divide too. And your fences divide too. And the ring on your finger if you're married divides too. Division to protect things that are healthy and good. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Those clear lines help us protect from what's trying to creep in and steal. And they were denying an essential truth. They were denying, really, that the grace of God was enough. They had perverted the heart of the gospel by perverting, and this happens oftentimes in subtle ways, by perverting the heart of the gospel in the fourth century, men were just subtly denying that Jesus was fully God, equal to God the Father, and equal to the Spirit. And during those times, there were men who were contending for the faith because they were willing to fight for the heart of the gospel. The gospel was preserved within the church. One of those men, Gregory of Nazianzu, said this way, as he was contending for the faith, he's fighting for something that, that in, in the clear teaching of Scripture, he's fighting for something that's, that will stand and be preserved. He said, the word cannot be stoned. The word, if you like, it flings stones, striking the wild beasts, the arguments with mischievously approach the mount. I mean, who's going to speak that way today about false teachers? Oh, you know, they mean well. They, they, you know, they have good hearts. Look at all the good they're doing in the world. Paul says, or Jude's like, no, contend, contend for the faith. 
Contend for the faith that was once delivered for all the saints. And when he says faith, he doesn't mean, you know, when you ever you see the in front of faith in the Bible, it's not your subjective experience of believing in Jesus. The faith is the set of truths contained in the scripture. And it was once delivered to all the saints. No Thing extra outside of the Bible. Jude's writing probably, we don't know exactly when he's writing, doesn't give us enough hints to figure that out, probably towards the end of the apostolic age. There's questions as to whether Jude or Second Peter were written first because they kind of borrow from each other. Either way, they're written towards the end of the apostolic age. By the end of the apostolic age, most of the Bible that, was, that we have here was given to the church in various forms. It was all here. And here's Jude saying, all that is here is all that there is, and it's all that you need. This is enough. And this is what the false teachers were subtly doing in this church. They were coming in and saying, look, look. The Bible's good. Oh, it's so good. It's the word of God, but, it, but you need something extra. We, they had dreams and visions, and if you just had this little extra, then you would be able to understand here. And so you need the Bible plus this little extra. This little extra later revelation, this little extra interpretation, this little, and that's the lie that false teachers will always tell us it is a deadly thing that will shipwreck our faith. It was once delivered. Jude's here. It's once delivered. It's enough. It was given to the church. The the church knows this word. All the saints. False teachers creep in and what they say has evolved. There's a subtle temptation. for We need to change our beliefs because the culture has changed. That's sort of our subtle change. Like we're getting a lot of hostility, things like, like marriage and the Bible's position on homosexuality. It's unpopular. We need to change our position because the culture is changing. And Jude's saying, no, look, contend for this. Once delivered for all the saints, this is God's word. Build your life on this ancient truth. Apply it to our world. This is often what I say about us as a church. We are historically grounded, culturally relevant. Those two things are not in opposition. This is enough to face whatever we're facing. This is enough to build our lives on. This is enough to fight for. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus has fled. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray these things so that you would be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus. Amen.